0: You gotta know it. You gotta know it. You've got to know it. You've got to know it. You gotta know it. What is up, Punkcasters? This is a core content rapid review diving into everything that you've got to know about shock. Let's cut the fluff and go straight for the meat and potatoes. If it's what the people want, let's go.
1: Shock is a catch-all term for life-threatening circulatory failure. If recognized and intervened upon early enough, many causes of shock are readily reversible. But shock can rapidly progress to devastating and irreversible organ dysfunction,
0: failure, and even death. I think we need to zoom in on what's going on at the cellular level. Of course you think we should do that. No, 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 no. Nerd. No, this is legit important. So, shock is a cellular problem. When we talk about shock, what we really mean is that there's an imbalance between oxygen delivery and oxygen consumption. Normally, oxygen delivery far exceeds oxygen consumption, but in shock, we see decreases in oxygen delivery, sometimes increases in oxygen consumption, or both
1: so basically oxygen consumption starts to approximate or even exceed oxygen
0: delivery yep and that's bad for multiple reasons You're about to say something really nerdy. Whatever. Remember that there are two main ways that the cell is able to generate ATP. Oh, ATP. Shut up. The first is oxidative phosphorylation. And this is the classic type of cellular respiration that we all learned about. The one that's really efficient, can make over 30 moles of ATP per mole of glucose. Moles. This type of metabolism requires oxygen as a final electron acceptor. But the second type is substrate-level phosphorylation. This is anaerobic metabolism. It's super inefficient. We can only net 2 moles of ATP as compared to 30. And the final electron acceptor in this type of metabolism is pyruvate. And reducing pyruvate makes lactate. Ah, lactic acidosis. Yeah, but hold on. I'm not done. You can imagine that if you had a condition of global systemic cellular hypoxia, then all you can perform is substrate level phosphorylation. Your cells can't make enough ATP to perform basic cellular functions. And I think that's enough. Eventually you're no longer able to defy the second law of thermodynamics. Sure, I and therefore, so. entropy that you staved off all of these years will begin to increase in your body. Really, really. Until do eventually your cells and atoms succumb once again to the randomness of the universe and you become one with space in time.
1: Are you you done now? Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Let's bring it back to real-life physiology, what the regular people want to know. What determines
0: oxygen delivery? I'm so happy you asked. There are two primary determinants of oxygen delivery, or DO2, and they are arterial oxygen content, which can be further subdivided into arterial oxygen saturation, which we approximate and measure with the SpO2, or the pulse oximeter, hemoglobin, and to a much smaller extent partial pressure of arterial oxygen. The second determinant of oxygen delivery is cardiac output. We all learned that classic
1: equation for cardiac output, heart rate times stroke volume, but things get a little more complicated than that. Stroke volume is determined by three things. Preload, or how much blood is in the ventricles at the end of diastole, afterload, or the force that the heart has to pump against, This is known as SVR, or systemic vascular resistance. And finally, inotropy, or how hard the heart is squeezing. Before we move on,
0: let's do just a little summary for our listeners out there. Shock is an
1: imbalance between
0: oxygen delivery and oxygen consumption. It really occurs at the cellular level, and the bottom line is that lack of oxygen decreases how much energy we can produce. In a relatively anaerobic environment, cells develop this energy debt that's not compatible with life.
1: As cells switch to anaerobic metabolism, they produce lactate, which has a whole slew of
0: effects on its own. Shock is typically caused by a decrease in oxygen delivery, an increase in oxygen consumption, or both. Oxygen delivery is determined by two things. Arterial oxygen content, further subdivided into hemoglobin, SpO2, and to a lesser extent, PaO2. And cardiac output, which is subdivided into heart rate, preload, afterload, and inotropy early recognition of
1: shock and appropriate intervention is imperative to prevent progression to irreversible, multisystem organ failure, and death.
0: There are four major categories of shock that we're going to talk about. Distributive, cardiogenic, obstructive, and hypovolemic.
1: Rather than define each one, I think it'll be more beneficial To present a few cases. I agree.
0: Let's start with a 50-year-old patient who presents with altered mental status and tachypnea. Their chest X-ray shows a clear left lower lobe infiltrate, and she's febrile to 101 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 38.3 degrees Celsius for our friends on the metric system. She's received her full 30 cc per kg IV fluid bolus of 2 liters. On exam, she's tachycardic with warm skin. Her cap refill is greater than 4 seconds, and she's had no urine output over the past 5 hours that she's been in the ED. Her heart rate is 130, and her blood pressure is 101 over 50, with a MAP of 68. John, my first question to you is, is she in shock?
1: I think many would be tempted to say no, because she's normotensive. But I'm going to go ahead and say yes, mostly because this is a podcast episode about shock.
0: Any chance you got a lactate for me? It's 5.5 after that appropriate fluid resuscitation. Oh, then definitely, yes, she's in shock. Can you elaborate a little bit on your normotensive
1: comment? Sure. I hear a lot of people convince themselves that a patient isn't in shock just because their blood pressure is normal. But remember that shock isn't about blood pressure. It's about
0: oxygen delivery. And this patient has some pretty clear indications that she has an oxygen delivery problem. Decreased cap refill, lactic acidosis, tachycardia, which I presume is compensatory, and then multiple signs of end organ dysfunction, altered mental status, acute kidney injury. This patient is sick. One of the things that helped when
1: I was early on is the shock index. It's a pretty simple bedside calculation heart rate divided by systolic blood pressure. A score of greater than 0.9 is helpful for a diagnosis of occult shock. This patient's shock index is 1.3.
0: Did you actually do that in your head? No, I've got my calculator on my phone. (laughs) I can't do math anymore. So let's not keep the people waiting. What type of shock is this? Definitely
1: septic shock, which falls under
0: the category of
1: distributive shock.
0: Distributive shock is a broad term for shock caused by vasodilation. This is a pipe problem.
1: By far the most common type of distributive shock is sepsis, where inflammatory cytokines cause systemic vasodilation. Ooh, say it again.
0: Inflammatory co-oxidative hurricane. But it's not the only type of distributive shock. There are many forms of non-septic distributive shock as well. Things like anaphylactic shock, neurogenic shock, post-cardiac surgery, vasoplegia, or really any condition that causes systemic vasodilation, pancreatitis, trauma, burns. I mean, the list goes way on. John, what's the hemodynamic profile of a patient in distributive shock? They typically have normal or increased preload, increased
1: cardiac output, if it's early, but often later they can have decreased cardiac output, and most prominently, a significantly reduced SVR, or systemic vascular resistance.
0: You can imagine that if we have a problem with preload, afterload, and sometimes cardiac output, then the mainstay of management of a patient with distributive shock is going to be fluids, vasopressors, and sometimes inotropes. Typically, you're going to
1: fluid resuscitate until they're no longer fluid responsive. How do you figure that out? Oh no, you're not going to let me open that can of worms unless you want this to be a three-hour episode. I like controversy. I'm going to put some goodies for y'all in the show notes for you to review. If the patient remains hypotensive after appropriate fluids, your next step should be vasopressors. Adding inotropes should
0: be evaluated on a case-by-case basis. You should be able to answer this one. What kind of tools are you going to use to evaluate cardiac output and guide whether or not you need to add an inotrope like milrinone or dobutamine? It depends, but the tools in my toolbox are
1: flow track, bedside ultrasound, PA cath, clinical exam, and
0: surrogates of perfusion like lactate and ScvO2. It sounds like we probably need to do an entire episode dedicated to hemodynamic monitoring, but we'll save that for another day. You got to know it. I like it let's move on to our next case this is a 70 year old man who presents to your emergency department with shortness of breath cough and lower extremity swelling on exam he's in distress working to breathe and tachycardic he's got distended neck veins and a systolic ejection murmur heard at the sternal border His skin is cold to the touch, and telemetry shows AFib with RVR in the 120s. His chest x-ray has bilateral pulmonary edema, and his blood pressure is 80 over 45. You draw a serum lactate, and it's 5.0. He sounds pretty sick. You're a prodigy.
1: Well, really he sounds like he's got a bad heart. JVD, pulmonary edema, hypotension, all that sounds like cardiogenic shock to me. You're right. What do you think is causing it? Well, there's lots of reasons that a patient may be in cardiogenic shock, but there are three broad categories that immediately come to mind. The first one is cardiomyopathy, typically severe heart failure, myocardial infarction, myocarditis. The second is arrhythmia, like AFib, RVR, or complete heart block. And finally, mechanical problems, like valvular rupture or critical stenosis. What's the hemodynamic profile of a patient in cardiogenic shock? Typically, we're going to
0: see increased preload, decreased cardiac output, and increased afterload. It's a really interesting profile because while the body is trying to compensate low flow by vasoconstricting systemically, it's actually creating more work for the heart that's already failing to pump against high afterload. So how are we going to approach this patient? Well, obviously, everything starts with the ABCs. I'm going to ensure that the patient has a patent airway, appropriate oxygenation, and perfusion. I really like non-invasive ventilation, unless this patient has an indication for urgent intubation. I think one of the most underrated interventions in this case is calcium. It's a pretty benign medication, all things considered, and it's actually a pretty potent inotrope. Calcium gluconate if all you have is a peripheral IV, or you can use calcium chloride if you have a central line. The next step, of course, should be determining the most likely cause and treating that, if at all possible. It would be great to use inotropes, but if the problem is valvular rupture, then they probably need surgical intervention. And finally, the mainstay of managing true, sick heart cardiogenic shock is going to be inotropes and vasopressors. Vasopressors? We just said afterload is high in these patients. No, you're right. You don't often need them in true, pure cardiogenic shock, but remember that inotropes like milrinone and dobutamine are really inodilators. So, yeah, they're positive inotropes, but they also cause systemic vasodilation. So basically,
1: you're going to initiate your inotrope to correct your cardiac output and then support your blood pressure with
0: vasopressors if needed. Yeah, so I'll, I'll initiate a vasopressor to maintain a MAP of 65 along with my inotrope if I have to. So why not use epi? I think you can make a case for epi. It's an inopressor, so it has both positive inotropy and vasoconstrictive effects, and I'll use it in a pinch. You know, if I'm resuscitating a patient on the floor and I don't have access to all the medications I want. But over a longer period of time, I prefer to control my inotropy and vasoconstriction relatively independently. Was there any data to back you up, or is this just your opinion? Well, there was a pilot study in 2011 that compared norepinephrine and dobutamine combo versus epinephrine for patients with cardiogenic shock. Now, granted, this was a pilot study, only 30 patients at a single center. Mm. But I think the results were interesting. There was no difference in terms of global hemodynamic effects, but epi had greater rates of tachycardia, arrhythmia, and worsening splanchnic perfusion as measured by the PCO2 gap. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I I hope this turns out to a full multi-center trial, but from a physiologic standpoint... It makes sense to be able to independently control your vasoconstriction and your inotropy as opposed to just giving a medication that does both with no control over it. Let's move on to the next case. You present to a rapid response called out on the floor. You find a 37-year-old female who had a recent cholecystectomy and she's in significant distress. She's hypotensive with a blood pressure of 75 over 42. On chart review, she was normotensive until about 30 minutes ago, and she's been getting IV fluids for presumed sepsis. She's had a total of 3 liters in since she became hypotensive, and she's had no improvement in her blood pressure. She's tachypnic and tachycardic. Yikes. That's my contribution. (laughs) Yikes. You decide to do a bedside echocardiogram. And you find RV dilation and a positive McConnell sign. We should probably stop giving her fluids. <laughs> yes, I agree. Uh, but
1: why do you say that? What, what's a McConnell sign? McConnell sign is a distinct finding on an echocardiogram
0: that is highly specific, not sensitive. So it's highly specific for PE, but it does not mean if you don't have a McConnell sign that you don't have a PE. Yes, highly specific for pulmonary embolism. It's a regional wall
1: motion abnormality of the RV that spares the right ventricular apex.
0: You're going to have to check out the show notes to see a clip of this.
1: Yeah, it's hard to explain on audio, but it's pretty easy to spot if you know what to look for. It's theorized to be related to a hyperdynamic LV, RV dilation, and localized ischemia of the free wall of the RV. So why is she so
0: hypotensive?
1: Pulmonary embolism, duh. Why would that make you hypotensive? Obstruction. In fact, obstructive shock. Most of the types of obstructive shock, PE, cardiac tamponade, tension pneumothorax, are essentially problems of the RV preload
0: or RV afterload. The profile of obstructive shock is going to be decreased cardiac output and increased systemic vascular resistance. Now, preload is going to be variable depending on the cause. The mainstay of treatment is, well, you guessed it, going to be to relieve the obstruction. So, thrombolysis or thrombectomy of PE,
1: drainage of the pericardial effusion, or decompression of the tension pneumothorax.
0: Alright, the next and final case. This is a 67-year-old female found down at home by her daughter. She's been reportedly not feeling well for the past several days, Her daughter says that she's had diarrhea for quite some time but didn't want to go to the doctor. On exam, she has dry oral mucous membranes, flat neck veins, and poor skin turgor. Her blood pressure is 85 over 60, and she has a MAP of 43. She's tachycardic to the 120s. Sounds like she needs some fluids. Why? This is pretty
1: clear as day hypovolemic shock to me. The profile of hypovolemic shock is what you'd expect. Preload is down, cardiac output is down, and SVR is way up. So, give fluids. That's all you're going to do? No. In my opinion, a map that low is too low just to correct with fluids. It's going to take too long. Yeah, I forgot to tell you that all they could get was a 22 in the hand and a 20 in the AC. Right. So, we're talking several minutes to even a half hour before she gets any meaningful hemodynamic dose of fluids. She may not have that long before she decompensates further. So, what you're saying is. In a patient like this, I'm probably going to initiate vasopressors for a MAP of 65 while
0: concurrently resuscitating her with fluid. I know that sounds like a backwards strategy. A lot of people think, well, I'm just going to give fluid so I can avoid vasopressors, but I couldn't agree more. You might be tempted to just load her up with fluids and wait because she's clearly volume down, but significant hypotension with a MAP that low should be treated as an emergency. This isn't some soft blood pressure that we can fix with a 500cc fluid bolus. She has a high probability of decompensating or even dying, and I don't want to take the watch and wait approach with her. Right. And if she's truly volume responsive, then we can probably wean off vasopressors once she's had the appropriate fluid resuscitation. We're sort of hinting at the mainstay of hypovolemic shock, and that's fluid resuscitation, with the caveat that you should probably be replacing with the appropriate fluids. Right. So there are really two
1: major types of hypovolemic shock, hemorrhagic, so loss of blood, and
0: non-hemorrhagic, loss of not blood. Non-hemorrhagic meaning things like diarrhea, large-volume emesis, burns, GI surgery, pancreatitis, etc.
1: So this goes without saying, but you don't want to administer large-volume crystalloid resuscitation to a patient who is losing blood. Make sure you're replacing the same type of fluid they're losing. Back to our initial patient. Is there anything else you're going to do for her? Well, I'll be honest. I find myself questioning whether or not this patient has an infection. Why is she having diarrhea?
0: Does she have any other signs she may be infected? Occam's razor, man. Hypovolemic shock is the disease that explains all of the patient's problems. I mean, it doesn't matter whose razor you're talking about, but the patient can have as many diseases as they darn well please. Hickam's Dictum. That's a fair point and an important one. Remember that patients can have mixed shock. And to be honest, it can be really difficult to navigate the hemodynamic waters of identifying and managing this. Gotta know this.
1: (laughs) I love that. Gotta know this. I think this is a great time to transition into our final segment of this episode. What am I supposed to do if my patient doesn't respond to my vasopressor? That's easy grab another vasopressor. Well, yes, but that's not the whole story.
0: I agree. Uh, Salim Rezae, he's an emergency physician and the creative brain behind Rebel EM. He had a great post on occult causes of non-response to vasopressors. In his post, and I love this, he writes, the cognitive response to hypotension should not be reaching for a pressor. Yeah, stabilize the patient's blood pressure, but the journey shouldn't end there. He goes on to write, the primary therapy for any sick and hypotensive patient is treatment of the underlying pathology. Many patients simply respond to vasopressors,
1: so it can be easy to set it and forget it once your line is in and the norepi is out.
0: Until you get the following page, norepi is maxed out, patient is still hypotensive, need further orders. Start your second presser. But your
1: cognitive response shouldn't stop there. Ask yourself why the patient is requiring more pressure support. Salim has an awesome list of possible causes, including acidosis, hypothyroidism, adrenal insufficiency, hypocalcemia, blood loss, and even a second cause of shock. We'll
0: put a link to his post in the show notes for you to check out yourself. Jer, what do you think of the term undifferentiated shock? It's my least favorite term. Are there some cases of truly undifferentiated shock? Sure. But we live in an era where we have the great differentiator, and that's point-of-care ultrasound. I'm a big fan of the rush exam, rapid ultrasound for shock and hypotension, and I think in general we greatly underutilize ultrasound as a resuscitative tool in our shock patients. What's the rush? It starts with a parasternal long axis view of the heart, and then you can move on to an ape.
1: I I was making a joke. It's like a pun. It's punny. Oh. Well, excuse me. I thought that you wanted to learn something. I think we've learned enough for today. Let's put Rush in the show notes and
0: summarize. (laughs) I like it. Shock. It's a life-threatening imbalance of oxygen delivery and oxygen consumption at the cellular level. Identify and correct the underlying pathology quickly to prevent your patient progressing to multi-system organ failure and death. There are four general subtypes, distributive, cardiogenic, obstructive, and hypovolemic. And remember, mixed shock does exist. And don't forget a strong cognitive pause when your patient doesn't respond to your first vasopressor. Don't just reach for another, but really drill down on what the problem is. And check out the show notes for the rush exam because it really is a valuable tool. Until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading.